this is the value that I find in this community. It is a sort of microcosm of what the real world is and world has the potential to be. And so it's really informed the way I think about my little art world <laughs> as being in conversation with the medical industry or with economics in this community has been really valuable in that way, where I can be myself and I can be honest about my gaps in knowledge and also receive the same kind of generosity and say, yeah, I'm happy to help you this way. Can you help me with this? That kind of exchange has been really, really valuable. Hello, my name is Karishma Bagani. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a member of the 2021 cohort of the Knight Hennessy Scholars. I'm a third-year PhD candidate in the Department of Theatre and Performance Studies and I'm a practicing producer of the performing arts. I imagine a world where art is the central force of our lives, bringing us together and encouraging us to empathize with multiple perspectives. Today we're speaking with Karishma Bagani, a PhD candidate in Theatre and Performance Studies. During our conversation, you'll learn about Karishma's upbringing as a fifth-generation East African, pursuing a degree in theater and history in the U.S., using the arts to center conversations about change, and so much more. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Willie Thompson. I'm a member of the 2022 cohort of Knight Hennessy Scholars, and I am a current MBA 2 in the Graduate School of Business here at Stanford. And I'm Taylor Goss. I'm a member of the 2021 cohort of Knight Hennessy Scholars, and I'm pursuing a Master of Arts in Music, Science, and Technology, and a Master of Arts in Public Policy. With that being said, y'all heard the introduction. We've got Karishma here on the pod, in the flesh. You guys can't see this, but she's in a bright red blazer, killing the game with a brooch. Is that a cat? Yes, it's a cat. It's a beautiful cat brooch. (laughs) It belonged to my mother. Oh, wow. It's a 20-year-old brooch. That's amazing. (laughs) So that brooch is about to graduate college. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. How did that brooch end up on your lapel? Well, I decided that I'm a brooch person and then asked my mother if she had any. And she opened up this collection, unbeknownst to me, and just displayed all of them. Wow. She's like, you're allowed to pick three. Okay. So I picked a peacock, I picked a lizard, and I picked the cat. So clearly there's a theme here, but uh, she seems to like her insects and animals, I guess. I like that a lot more as a personality test rather than like, you know, the BuzzFeed quiz or or like the EIFJ (laughs) thing. If you were a brooch, yeah. If you were to wear a brooch, what would it be and what? What what animals would your brooch be? (laughs) Exactly. It actually reminds me of Madeline Albright. Who mm. used to who did broach broach diplomacy? Yeah, that's right. Have you heard of this? Oh, Krishna. Uh, yeah, this topic has not been broached up to me before. So yeah, so Madeline Albright, who I believe, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was good. That was good. So Madeline Albright, the first uh, woman to be Secretary of State, I believe, I in believe the U.S. So. so she used to wear brooches when she would go on her diplomatic trips, and so she had this tradition and legacy of wearing these ornate brooches to like signal certain things anyway you can google it it's yeah i think she kind of mm. like kind of threw shade with them occasionally oh yeah 100 percent. it was a statement brooches oh oh okay so like what what statement is your brooch telling us today for this podcast oh uh i i don't <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know that i you know but it, it's trying you know okay the tail of the okay there's a story behind this brooch because it fell once okay okay and there was a cat Tail. The tail, cat had a tail. Okay. But now the cat does not have a tail. So that's not a tail. So are those his hind legs? Yes. On, oh. 
So it's supposed to be a happy cat because the tail is supposed to show. Okay. I see. But it doesn't look like a happy cat because the tail is not showing. Okay. But I don't know. I'm feeling as perched up as this um, cat is for this podcast today. Let's well, say that. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. I'm really glad to have you on. <laughs> Thanks to listeners for indulging this aside. I mean, before we even get into the amazing Imagine the World statement, just how are you doing? How's life? Things are Good, for the most part. You know, as I was thinking about the Imagine a World statement, I was thinking about the state of the world and Mm -hmm. how we're just going through what feels like the hardest moment that we've experienced post-COVID. And I don't know that we're really in a post-COVID world, but Mm -hmm. the thing that gets me up every morning is knowing that the work that I do as an artist does have the potential to change the world. Mm -hmm. And um, especially in the world that we're living in today, where there's so many polarizing opinions and perspectives, it just feels like creativity is the center of what's going to keep us going. I love that. So and that's how I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. And before we get into this imaginal world statement, obviously you're here in Stanford, but we want to talk about the world you're born into and the world that you come from. So can you share with the audience, where are you from and what was your journey here to Stanford? I'm from Mombasa, Kenya. I was born and raised in this, it's an island city. I don't even know if it can be called a city because it's tiny. Everyone knows everybody. I recently learned that um, I'm actually fifth generation East African, Mm. um, and so my roots have been in East Africa for a very long time, tracing back to Dar es Salaam and, of course, further on into South Africa with the trade routes and the indentured labor and mercantilism between, you know, the Indian Ocean, um, uh, well, trade, essentially. My great-great-grandfather came as a railway worker, Mm. and um, uh, from the other side of my family, my great-grandfather came as you know, searching for business opportunities. Mm. So that's how we landed in East Africa. And that's been home for me for a very long time, even when I was, even before I was conceived, like even before (laughs) the womb. Um, So that's where I come from. And, uh, you know, that really has formed a really core part of who I am today in terms of the kind of work that I do in the way that I position myself, because there is this perception around the world that Africa is black. And I think it's really important, of course, for us to recognize that because it comes with a lot of violences, deep-seated tensions from communities around the continent. But I think that there are a lot of other stories and a lot of other narratives that are missing. And I am really passionate about being able to bring those to the fore in the work that I do. So that's where I come from. I grew up in this small town and went to the same school from nursery all the way to high school. Whoa. Yep. Same campus. It was a beautiful, beautiful campus. I went to the Aga Khan Academy in Mombasa. I pursued the IB mm-hmm. program from the primary years program all the way to the diploma. And then, you know, I moved to New York out of all places in the world. So it's from the small, what feels like the smallest city in the world to big city, bright lights kind of life to pursue this degree in acting at NYU uh, Tisch School of the Arts. So that was a very big shift for me and, and huge culture shock. And of course, I refused to accept it because I thought, okay, it's fine. I'll adjust. I'll adjust. You know, you have to persevere. You can't talk about culture shock. You can't talk about how difficult it is to be away from home. It was really, really tough, but it also opened up the world to me in, in terms of what was possible career-wise. When you were growing up, what was your relationship with art like? Uh, so I actually grew up dancing. Mm. Not many people know this, and I guess now the whole world will know this, but I grew up as a dancer. My mom often joked that I learned how to dance before I learned how to walk. So she sent me, a lot of, <laughs> sent me for a lot of dance classes as a kid. I started dancing when I was about two. I did ballet and tap and I'm classically trained as well. So Kathak and Bharatanatyam. And I never really finished any of those forms of training. So in classical Indian dance, there's this moment that you have, which is kind of like a coming of age moment for young women, 
around the age of 16, you do what is called an arangetram. It's like your graduation for dance, where you do a couple of different repertory sort of performances and then a couple of original forms of choreography that you've trained with, with your guru. But it's quite an expensive endeavor. It's mm. almost as expensive as, you know, paying for an in- a big fat Indian wedding. Okay. <laughs> so when the time came and I said to mom and dad, okay, so should I do this thing? They were like, well, look, it's, it's going to be very expensive. We can't afford it. If we have to fly judges in from abroad, I don't think this is going to work. Oh, wow. Okay. So I left the um, education incomplete. And, you know, as I reflect, as a kid, I left a lot of, th- I did I pursued a lot of different hobbies in the arts as well as, you know, sports and whatnot that I left incomplete. And as a child, it felt like, you know, I would never have the opportunity to really go beyond my academics and be this well-rounded person. But in retrospect, I think that's what's really formulated the core of who I am as a person. Mm. Um, There's a politics of incompleteness that exists in my work, but that has made me more of a conscious producer in the performing arts today, because the people that I work with come from similar backgrounds and come from similar sort of life stories. So as a practicing artist who didn't necessarily get to fully complete any kind of training, I'm extra conscious of making sure that the spaces that I curate or create or help produce are as well equipped as possible to make sure that those around me can complete whatever they need to complete. So that's, I guess, how art influenced the work that I do today. I'm going to let that sit for a second. That was good. I love your thoughts on on leaving things incomplete and what sounds to me like comfort with uncertainty, potentially or comfort with diverging perspectives. Did that lead directly to acting for you? So you pursued this degree in acting and why did you decide on that degree? Why NYU? And maybe also to that, why did you add history? I sort of feel like there is this even seeing like your PhD journey, you have a minor in the PhD. I know you could have a minor in a PhD, but like I sort of see like this supplemental or complement, this exploration of like what can complement sort of your experience in academia. So if you can also take those questions, just include like why history as well. Yeah. So I thought that I would become a lawyer. When I was five years old, I said to my parents, I'm going to Harvard on a full scholarship, very legally blonde kind of journey. And this as is a what five-year-old. I'm gonna, yeah, as a five-year-old. <laughs> of course, I mean. What else would a five-year-old be thinking about other than going to Harvard for law school? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was the dream. And of course, then when the moment came to apply for school, first-generation college student mm. from a low-income family. And so I didn't really have folks in my family that I could look up to or talk to about you know, the, the application process. So it's only once I started applying that I realized, oh, if you were going to pursue this degree in the U.S., you're going to need an undergrad and then take pre-law classes before applying to law school. So I thought, okay, well, in that case, what am I good at? Or what could I see myself doing for four years without feeling like I'm going to, you know, fail? And acting was the only thing that came to mind, drama. You know, I used to love doing theater as a kid alongside dancing and tennis and netball and badminton. And I used to uh, direct a lot of shows in school. And so I thought this would be a nice way to pass the time (laughs) um, for undergrad. And then, of course, I immediately regretted it because the auditioning process was just so rigorous and so Mm. grueling, and I had never been through anything like this before. But in hindsight, I'm really grateful to have gotten the kind of training that I did at NYU under the acting program. It's there where I realized that the impact that I wanted to make as a lawyer, I could make through the arts, right? And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier art can be the center of the discussions and the conversation and the change that we want to make in this world. So, you know, started off with this acting career and I was in the experimental theater wing. So lots of stuff was being thrown at me from the avant-garde world that I just never had experienced before. Black box theater vibe. Yeah, completely. (laughs) Everybody comes dressed in black and talks about how they just had these artistic moments in the middle of their dreams. And I was just sitting there like, I'm dreaming about home. 
and making sure that I finish, you know, <laughs> my assignments on time and still trying to, you know, struggle to ex- experience the hustle and bustle of the city and trying to find my way around and make sure I don't miss the train and make sure that I, you know, all of these things. Long story short, I kept wanting more. I kept wanting to see the bigger picture. What's bigger than just acting? So some of my advisors, Catherine Corey and Kevin Kalki, advised that I, you know, take directing classes because that'll give me a bigger scope. I'll be able to sit back and watch what happens and help sort of string things together, as it were. Started doing directing, really fell in love with it, but more like a hobby than an actual career. And so towards the final year of my graduation, I thought, okay, so what is it really that could be bigger than directing? How can I really think about the structures and the spaces in more depth and detail? Mm -hmm. Because again, I was finding that I was often the only person from my context writing about my stories and my perspectives. And I knew that there were a lot of other people who had potentially more interesting stories to tell than mine. Mm -hmm. So how do we create a space where more Africans can tell their own stories from you know, different perspectives and different backgrounds and bridging different kinds of arts. And that's how I got into producing. I worked with the Nairobi Musical Theatre Initiative first as an intern and then became their associate producing director in 2019, right before the pandemic. And so that was really my entry point into, into the producing world. And I've heard you talk a bit about the difference between directing and producing from your mentor, Roberta Levitao, I believe, who said that Directors are sort of architects, producers are sort of people who construct. And so I'm wondering, to your point around the imaginal world statement about art being centered to the conversation, what is your take on where art is now in our ability to have conversation? And how do you think about bringing people into a context and experience that they're unfamiliar with? Because as an African-American, for example, I think a lot about August Wilson and what he did with the Pittsburgh cycle and being like, oh, wow, this Black man wrote you know, a play for every decade in the 20th century about Black life and how that's been an outlet to center sort of Blackness in America in a way. So I'm wondering for you, just to that point, where is art now and how do you sort of bring people into that? It's a great question. I do not think that the conversation about where art is now can be had without a conversation around equity and equality and the differences between that. You cannot have a conversation about what kind of art has the potential of changing the world if that art does not embody the multiple perspectives that exist in the world. And I think that we're still at that place of decolonizing a certain kind of canon Mm. in different parts of the world, right from even thinking about the systems and the circuits that exist. Broadway market, for example. What work exists in the Broadway market and which perspectives is it privileging? And even, you know, it's not enough to say we're having work that is done by and for people of color. It's not enough. I think that it's important to recognize that we've come a really, really long way. And this is where, going back to your previous question, my interest in history sort of sprung up. Mm -hmm. I think it's really critical for us to acknowledge the things that have happened in our pasts and learn from them so that we can avoid imposing the same kinds of violences in our future. But that also positions us in a place to think about who has a seat at the table and then what kinds of seats are those seats? Some people have high chairs, some people have Mm. stools, some people have ladders. How do we make sure that the person who's on the ladder can actually equally have the same kind of relationship with the person on the stool? Those levels are 
completely different, but that they can be on the same table and they need to in order for any kind of productive conversation to happen. Yeah, you spitting, girl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lord. My brain's going two different directions. I'm trying to figure out which way it's most conducive to the conversation. One really quickly is, could you just elaborate on what it means to decolonize a canon? Like, I think as someone who, we talked about this in the Kay and Lydia episode about people who are in PhD programs, you ask them a question, you can tell them they thought about it extensively, and there's a lot of thought behind it. And sometimes a lot of my friends who are in PhD programs are like, I'm in this program to sort of bridge the ivory tower with like communities and people who like might not have access to those spaces. And so one would just love to embody some of that and sort of bringing this theory into like practicality and how you think about it and defining decolonizing a canon. And then I'll save my other question for later because I think it'll fit in somewhere else. So let's let's go with that one real quick and then I'll pass off to Taylor. Yeah. Well, there are many approaches, mm-hmm. but the two that speak to me that are resonant in this moment are informed by both the rigor of the theory that we're learning in class mm-hmm. and then also just the reality of what exists on the ground. As I mentioned earlier, I practice on the continent I've produced a couple of festivals, independent shows, as well as work with, a, have a portfolio of artists that I essentially work with to help them imagine their work, regardless of the stage that it's at. And this work, you know, is not just touring locally, but regionally, and then also transnationally. I think, of course, you know, first and foremost, when you think about a canon, you think about the works that come to mind immediately, the Eurocentric realities in America, the America-centric realities, mm. and what is an America-centric canon which avoids or excludes the voices of people of color, for example. And again, I use that as a very blanket statement, Mm -hmm. kind of. So I think one of the first steps is to think about expanding the canon and thinking about, for example, works like August Wilson's Mm -hmm. to be included in this kind of, you know, discourse. But it's not just enough. It's never enough, but it's not just (laughs) enough (laughs) to add work to the canon. I think it's also important to have a decolonial lens with which to understand the canon, right? Uh, okay. So it's not just about let's add more material, but it's also how we look, what lens are we looking at the material through? That lens is determined by a Eurocentric understanding of the world. Linear storytelling structures, for example, mm-hmm. and not tributary, longer, non-plot-driven structures. That still then becomes a, a colonial way of thinking about works that maybe might benefit from a different way of um, being assessed or being read. So th- that would be my sort of very gut answer to how do we think about decolonizing a certain kind of canon. And in practice, it's also important to acknowledge the institutions within which we work, right? Of course, at some point in the coming years, the way institutions exist is going to change. Hmm. I don't know if it's going to happen in our lifetime. And so in our lifetime, how do we use the resources, education, and networks that we have to work within those institutions to alter them from within? Because they will burn down eventually. But before that happens, how do we use the space to make the thing happen the way we want it? In the interest of engaging in some nonlinear storytelling, <laughs> I'm. you've mentioned a little bit about a few of your mentor- mentors, you, you've thrown out some names of some of your mentors. And in entering these institutions that you're talking about and beginning to understand them, but also comparing them with the world from which you came, who are some people that shine especially brightly in your story? Wow. I think we might need a whole series on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, the challenge of the, of the podcast time limit. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I don't think I'll be able to name all of them, but I will, of course. Yeah, I will say that from the household to my professional world, you know, I've been surrounded by a bunch of 
really, really powerful women mm. ever since I've grown up, starting with my grandmother, who was the culture, is was the culture keeper of our household, you know, the managerial mind who would make sure everything was done to perfection in raising us and in taking care of the entire household. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my mother either. You know, the two of them collectively sort of raised me to be the, the woman that I am today. Both teaching me that there are paths to independence that are different from the kinds of stories and lives they led, but also reminding me to stay grounded in my values and in my culture and in, you know, my family. And of course, that family has expanded to include women, friends from all around the world, just different people, both in the professional and in my personal life. Uh, you mentioned Roberta Levito, who I really think is really, really special to me because she opened up the world professionally for me to think about producing even as a career. Mm -hmm. And she's one of my mentors who has unabashedly told me the thing I needed to hear in the moment. And it's oftentimes been very, very hard for her to say things and for me to hear them. But I always look back at the kinds of advice that she gave me because they've really shaped who I am today. And this is just one, you know, this is just one person. Um, and there's so many other women that I'm thinking about at the moment that I'm sending all my my love and um, affection to as, as you ask me this question. Yeah, Christian Tanja, who's on the admissions team, would always talk about how people have constellations of support. So mm -hmm, I can imagine yeah. that that there's, there's a whole galaxy out there of folks. Absolutely, absolutely. And you feel it in different ways, you know, the departed as well, those that I haven't met. Mm. My great-grandmother, for example, you feel it in your in your bones sometimes. You're just walking and you realize, actually, there's this, this aura around me that's just holding me and making sure that I'm protected and taken care of and taking the right path. So That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Mm. So based on that reflection, I now will go to the second question that was on my mind. How supportive was your family of this pursuit of the arts, considering the fact you've been talking about law school since the age of five? And not to get tethered to the single story too much, but I think one of the single stories about immigrant families or international families is like, so you want to go do the arts and you want to make a living with that. <laughs> Are you sure? And so- how did that experience play out for you and how has it changed since undergrad to now? Because I mean, you're pursuing a terminal degree. I didn't even know Stanford, to be honest, I know Stanford had a PhD program in what you're doing, which maybe that's a limitation of my imagination, but how has that process been for you and your family in light of all the support they've given you and all the ways you've talked about? I'll actually, I'll take it back really quick and, and tell a story that my mother recently shared with me. She was the rule for, she's the oldest daughter of her family. And she sees herself as this rule-following, law-abiding human, right? She did everything she was told to. She took care of everyone she needed to take care of. And then she said to me, she said, Krishma, you know, the day I was born, I realized, oh, the day I was born, so the day, as in the day she was, she gave birth to me, she realized that if she continued to do that, then I would be raised doing nothing but following rules and following normative structures that would continue to replicate a certain kind of oppression that my people face. And so she said, I had to start breaking the rules so that you could see what it would be like to, you know, have no limits to your imagination. And that really stuck with me when she shared it, because I think that's the thing that inspired me to even think that I could pursue something different from a doctor, engineer, lawyer, or some kind of money-making endeavor. And to that end, both my parents have been nothing but supportive. And I've I've been so grateful to 
be able to be have the kind of open relationship that I have with them to say, hey, I want to pursue a degree in the arts. And, you know, it's not it, it was not a straightforward. Yeah, yeah, definitely do it. We sat down and we had a conversation and we came up with the plan of, OK, so how is this going to work? How do we think about, you know, um, whether or not this is going to be something you can sustain yourself on? And my dad really, really championed that. He sat down and he said, look, you have our support no matter what. You know that. But let me ask you how you're going to think about what you're going to do once you graduate. You know, in that way, I really hope that whoever's listening to this, if it's somebody who is looking to pursue some kind of career in the arts and doesn't necessarily have the same kind of support, I just want you to know that it's not impossible. It's a great life out there. It's hard Mm -hmm. and it's definitely a choice, but, you know, every career and every kind of path will come with its own challenges. But the people you meet along the way and the joy that there is in being able to be in the same room and make work and have friends that become chosen family is very unique, I think, to this career and to this field. That is so great. It's funny you saying this. It's making me think about my family. I'm a musician primarily, and and I've always felt that my family has been similarly supportive. And it's such a blessing to feel that not only do you have your family's support, but also their encouragement. And you were saying that, and their help in understanding what can this world look like? Because it's not always the most sure or stable thing to create a career in making change through the arts. Absolutely. And I know we've had this conversation yeah. before, right? That I think it then becomes our responsibility to create that kind of space for those that might not have it right. in their families. Yeah. And so I'm in awe of all the work that you do to foster that kind of network and community on our campus and in our community as scholars, but also in the world. So That's very sweet. And you do the same work. And I'm so glad that people who are listening can hear that encouragement from you because you are a very encouraging person who carries around this welcoming into the world of art with it everywhere you go. So I'm appreciative of that. Hugging you from across the table. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Amazing. At the point where we we left off in, in your stories in a chronological sense, you've entered these institutions. You're thinking about how to change them from the inside. You are supported by your family. You're creating this constellation of support. When you start thinking about your graduate program and applying to Knight Hennessy, where are you with your art? What are your priorities? And what was your mindset when applying to Stanford? Yeah, um, there is a very big division between academia and praxis yes. in mm-hmm. the performing arts. Absolutely. And that was really the large uh, motivator for me to apply for for the PhD. Um, I was also, you know, it was in the middle of the pandemic and I was thinking, okay, so what are the kinds of communities that I want to foster and how will I be able to do that and do the work that I want to do in the coming years. And it felt like graduate school was the right thing to do in that moment. So I only applied to one school because also I I thought to myself, you know, this is a a gamble. I don't know if this is the path. This is one option. So let me just... Suit your shot. Exactly. We have a phrase, throw the ugali on the wall and see if it sticks. Ugali is um, one of our staple dishes back home in Kenya. And, you know, as we're making it it, to see how, whether or not the texture is perfect, often we'll take some out of the sufuria, out of the the pot and throw it on the wall. And if it sticks, then you're you're good to go. So, yeah. Is this a rice dish or like? It's a flour. It's made of flour. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Get get hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe post podcast I can yeah, right. hey, look, teach <laughs> you on the record now. So <laughs> <laughs> we will send photos to our listeners after. <laughs> so yeah, so I only applied to one school, and then I thought to myself, okay, well, there's this this scholarship opportunity at Night Hennessy, and then once I learned about it, I realized that actually this is the space that I need to be in 
if I really want to think about how the arts can make an impact in other fields and in other landscapes, global landscapes. I remain the only theater and performance studies scholar within our community. So I really, as I graduate this year, I really hope that we have a couple more because I really think that the humanities community and then, of course, the artist community is quite small, but I think quite powerful in our little community here. So I really hope that it continues to expand. But going back to your question, that felt like one of the paths that I wanted to pursue to really think about, have conversations, not only across industries, but even within our own, because there's that difference between academia and practice. And if we were to have a more fluid conversation between both of these worlds, I think the quality of both works, both academic publications as well as work that's on stages would be positively impacted. It'd make a huge difference, I think. Can you exemplify a little bit of this tension for me? Because in a lot of ways, what you said confirms how I initially think of sort of like terminal degrees in other fields, even in the humanities, right? Like I think of a PhD in English. I'm like, all right, cool. I, I sort of see like where there's like a relationship and there's symbiosis there. And in the art, it sort of feels like to your point, like most of the people I've met who do, who've done theater aren't in academia. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about examples of like that rift and how the work you're doing right now will lead to building this, this connective tissue that allows for what you talked about earlier. Well, for starters, I think the perception is often that if you go to pursue a PhD, you're intending on teaching. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great, mm -hmm. but I think that there are other possibilities that one could pursue after getting a PhD. And that's really what I'm interested in, thinking about how once I have my doctorate, I could go back into the producing world and not only write about ethical decolonial producing practices that can inform academia, but also do them on the ground, actually learn from scholar artist-based practices. So I think Stanford's program is actually really well positioned in that way because they speak of creating and producing the next generation of artists, scholars. And I really think that embodies the idea of, of being able to bridge academia and praxis. Another example, I think, is that universities increasingly can become the spaces for development of new work. The industry here in the United States is not significantly funded, but it is well much better funded by the government, for example, than many countries in Africa. And so the circuits, the Broadway circuits, or the sort of uh, regional theater circuits, exist very separately from state universities, for example, or private universities like this one. And I think that performance studies departments or performance spaces with on campus could be that breeding ground for industry professionals to come into the space and work with students, have conversations about whatever aesthetic choices have been made on stage, but also be able to provide resources for very early stage developmental works. And I say that because it's usually the works by marginalized populations, low-income populations, international populations that don't receive the kind of funding from commercial markets at the development stage, which is then why they're not considered for these large commercial markets. But the university can be that kind of space because the university boasts and preaches ideas of decolonial thought more often than not. Mm -hmm. And so if we're learning that in theory, then why not bring you know, Middle Eastern voices, African voices to the space and see it in action. I say Middle Eastern and African because that's a lot of the work that I focus on here. And we've been doing a lot of staged readings and a lot of other workshops around some of the plays coming from these regions. So that's why Middle East and Africa came up as the first two. 
Yeah, and that also shows up in your in your work, uh, Haldi and Honey. You know, so you're you're, you're doing, <laughs> oh, you've done your research. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, just a little bit. <laughs> That's really encouraging to hear. I've never heard someone pitch the university as a platform for this idea of like validation and experimentation and decolonization that I find very resonant. Well, it's another example of working from within, right? Mm-hmm. These institutional setups are complicated and problematic and add all of the words there that, you know, express some of our sentiments in this space. But they can also be space for protest. They can also be spaces for resistance. And we have seen that around the world with movements like Roads Must Fall and Gandhi Must Fall. Those all happened from university contexts. So since arriving at Stanford and entering the Knight Hennessy community, how has Knight Hennessy and the people around that you've met around Stanford contributed to your vision of this change-focused world and, and art? I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that this community is so diverse, not just in terms of where people come from or their backgrounds or what they study, but just even in one body, in one person, the different forms of thinking, the different ways of relating with the world are enough to engage in conversations that can span hours, but teach me so much about topics and regions in the world that I have no idea of. And Yeah, the community is a microcosm of what the real world is and world has the potential to be. Mm. It's really informed the way I think about my little art world (laughs) as being in conversation with the medical industry or with economics. As a producer, for me, the business side of the arts is of utmost importance. Mm. So if we're thinking about commercial work, how do we make sure that there is a return on investment? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that And I ask these questions to myself all the time, right? How do we make sure that the work that we're putting on stage is actually, the labor behind it is recognized and we're able to make some kind of profit out of it that can be shared. And if it's not a profit-making piece, then what what are the other values and how can we think of creative partnerships across industries and regions to make this work happen? So I think that being able to have these kinds of informal conversations, have a brain trust of friends in this community has been really valuable in that way, where I can be myself and I can be honest and about my gaps in knowledge and also receive the same kind of generosity and say, yeah, I'm happy to help you this way. Can you help me with this? That kind of exchange has been really, really valuable. Yeah. And it's also fun. Like, graduate school is hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of times these conversations focus around, okay, community, how are you building a network of academic support and sure. this and that but it's like guys i just want to be able to put my feet up and have a glass of wine with the people a couple of people <laughs> yeah. that i love because life is hard mm. and i'm not getting enough sleep you know <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's it's so nice to have those people that i know that i can you know pick up the phone any day and say hey Geraldine, are you free? Can we hang out? Or hey, Kay, are you free? Can we? What are you doing? Like we need Talking to talk. some great names there. Yeah. <laughs> some good folks. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So many, you know, Harry Ashwin. So many, like so many other, you know, loved ones of mine here. So, and as you've mentioned, you're of course a, a student studying theater, but you're also a, a practicing director and producer. And Willie mentioned your Holly your piece, Holly and Honey. And I'm curious to know, could you talk about a work that you felt particularly proud of? or that particularly excited you that you'd like to share? Yeah, I'll speak about Haldi and Honey, because sure. I think it's the you know a piece that goes back to, again, what we were saying about the university as a space that could be the breeding ground for new work that we can experiment with. 
So as part of our second year in the theatre and performance studies department, which by the way, we have exams each year, like qualifying exams each what? year. You have a qualifying exam every year? Wow. Yes, my friend. Yeah, we yeah. do. <laughs> we have a first year paper, a comprehensive exam in the first year, a performance and a candidacy paper in the second, orals in our third, a prospectus in the fourth, and the dissertation. You're a strong a person. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. I name that to say that sometimes I think there's this perception that pursuing a degree in the arts, film studies or music yeah, yeah. is just, yeah, you get to put your feet up and watch movies all not day. The case, yeah, not the exactly. Case. It's not, or, oh, how could you not want to play the violin 24 hours a day? Yeah. Or how could you not want to be in the theater? It is as hard as a chemistry degree, <laughs> if not harder, you know? And this is not to compare, it's just to say that there's a lot of labor that goes into this work. And for me, I cannot sit in a cinema for fun anymore. Sure. Right? Oh, wow. I'm um, so sorry. I cannot watch <laughs> yeah. art for fun anymore. Right. So then the labor of developing new hobbies that are no longer <laughs> things that other people go to yeah. is a tough one too. So anyway, so Haldi and Honey, I mean, was part of my second year candidacy exam. We did the graduate repertory performances and we're expected to sort of create a work for, um, that is new and related to our research in some way. And so I, I pitched a project that I could direct, but also produce, because I was really interested in thinking about building partnerships across campus that could take me through, you know, my future years. I hope to direct a, a main stage show in the coming years. That's a musical that I've been working on with Alea and a couple of other colleagues. That's a brown black love story in Kenya. That's one of the core focuses of my research as well. So I thought, let me take this opportunity to experiment. We raised some funds to invite Alea to spend a month with us on campus as she wrote a new story. And her and I were focused on, we both lost our grandmothers at similar moments. Mm. And as you know, she is one of the big reasons, my pillar, she's my pillar and continues to be. Mm. And so we wanted to create a piece around that idea of grief and grieving and losing loved ones that could speak to a universal audience. And also she'd been thinking about also situating what it means to be a South Asian in Kenya today from an intergenerational perspective. And one thing that was of priority to her was to have works for older women. We just don't see older South Asian women on mm -hmm. stage in the same way. Those were our little ingredients, as it were. And then we just got into the room and made the work. And it was a draft, right? It was a sketch. For me, that was a big step in my own growth because I'm so used to having work on stage that's done, that's complete. And this, I think, is part of being a former British colony, being educated in that way that, you know, it has to be at the best possible level. Otherwise, you're not positioning yourself for excellence. Breaking that for me was big. It was a sketch. It was a piece of work that still had a lot of dramaturgical flaws that still needed to be developed. But we had the opportunity to experiment with it and bring in an audience and see how they'd respond, had a talk back. And we're at that stage now where we have enough meat and enough material and enough content to then go into our next stage of rewriting in the hopes that a theater will pick it up later on or that we can have a premiere in Kenya. So I wanted to provide a different angle there to say that I'm proud of that work because it helped me let go of perfectionist standards. I love it. But also position the university and my research as a space for me to just throw the ugali on the wall and see what sticks. And sticking it is. I can't wait to see this. So hopefully on a on, on a circuit somewhere. <laughs> I think I think that I think that you know we're friends. So if you could hook us up with tickets at some point, that would be Front appreciated. Row seats, oh, oh my wow. gosh! Oh, okay, all right. That's, I'm just saying that's, that's this, is yeah, this, this is recorded. Yeah, this is two things on record. All right, a, me, a meal and, and an in kind that's an right. in kind contribution to to see a play for Sam. I love it. Anytime, anytime. Uh, 
Well, look, I know we're coming up on time here, so let's transition to some of our, our closing questions that folks are probably familiar with. A key part of this Night Hennessy experience is this idea of improbable facts. So I think you even sort of started talking a little bit about this earlier in your story about dancing before you, about never crawling, just dancing. And maybe you have something that you want to say about Mississippi Masala and Denzel Washington. <laughs> uh, but just, oh, no. you know, uh, <laughs> you know, just what, what are some improbable facts that, about you that would be cool to share or to hear from? Folks that are listening for context, we just had a 15-minute long conversation before this podcast about how a world where everybody was some kind of manifestation of Denzel would just be a great world to live in. Very hot world to live in. <laughs> Literally and, you know, otherwise. It would make uh, it more difficult for some of us. I'm just going to for sure. I don't know that I Denzel in any other form is better than the Denzel in Mississippi. It's a beautiful film. Anyway... I picked up three languages at a go as a kid. Mm. So my mother was very uh, strategic about how she wanted me to learn these languages. So the minute I started speaking or babbling, she only spoke to me in English. Grandparents only in Gujarati. And my dad and the folks that, you know, like at the shop were working in around the house would only speak to me in Kiswahili. Mm. So I picked up those three languages at a go. But it's also what explains why I keep mixing things so much. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of my friends say that in one sentence, they can hear about four accents. Um, And that comes from having trained in the British system, for example, and then speaking these three various languages, all of which have different intonations. And then I picked up French and Hindi and Urdu later on. So that added another layer of just lots of accents going on. So if you can't understand me, I don't blame you. No, we, no, no, the mic Crisp is on. We hear you clearly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So as we're closing and wrapping up here, the final question we like, final question. Which <laughs> you get a list? From? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I picked up an accent during this conversation. Um, to close, what advice would you have for other people applying to Stanford and Night Hennessy? What would you say to them? Probably the most cliche thing, which is be you, but also... Treat the applications as an opportunity for you to connect with yourself more than a means to an end. Graduate school is not for everybody. The application cycle is hard. And even if you really, really, really want it and you really, really believe that you're the best candidate possible for whatever program or for Knight Hennessy, instead of having that be your end goal, think about the applications as a way for you to learn about what your pitch statement for the rest of your life will be for yourself. And that can change over the years. But I think for me, the writing that Night Hennessy application and thinking about it like that allowed me to think about what it is I want to do with the rest of my life. And it was that learning opportunity that I found very valuable. And then, of course, cherry on top when I got in. But that's the advice I would, I would give. Be you and use this as a way to learn about yourself that more than anything else. Beautifully said. And I'm so glad that you have found yourself in this community and that we can learn from you and your light and that you can bring this change-focused artist vision to Night Hennessy. So thank you for being here. Thank you for spending time with us and for sharing your story and your vision with the audience of Imagine a World. Yeah, we love it so much. And yeah, the hyphenate, artist, artist, scholar. I, know. I was like, man. Artist, <laughs> scholar, 
practicing producer director doing all the things you know and great be- friend funny person Aww. no yeah she had jokes for days you know yeah. fashionable Fashion- oh very fashionable. Stop. Stop. let's I'm go back to that <laughs> let's emphasize this beautiful red jacket <laughs> right that oh unfortunately you can't see right now yeah i know you know there was a devil in the blue dress she's yeah. an angel in a red jacket yeah <laughs> you know so yeah well, cool. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And to be clear, you're completing, which is basically finishing Night Hennessy, but you're not leaving Stanford. I joke with my friends that I might just be here when their children are attending. So <laughs> you just never know. I still have a couple of years to go. Okay. It will be a great service wherever you are. <laughs> you're very kind. Thank you for creating this space and for opening this opportunity up for us to tell our stories. It really, really is beautiful. And I love each of the episodes. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Imagine a World, where we hear from inspiring members of the KHS community who are making significant contributions in their respective fields, challenging the status quo, and pushing the boundaries of what is possible as they imagine the world they want to see. This podcast is sponsored by Knight Tennessee Scholars at Stanford University, a multidisciplinary, multicultural graduate fellowship program providing scholars with financial support to pursue graduate studies at Stanford while helping equip them to be visionary, courageous, and collaborative leaders who address complex challenges facing the world. Follow us on social media at Knight Hennessy and visit our website at kh.stanford.edu to learn more about the program and our community.